0: to episode 232 of 40 going on 14 i am mike i am patrick i'm joel and i'm josh how many dicks is that four a oh. lot
1: a lot <laughs> oh Bobby yes Wong, toby chong charlie fucking chan
0: <laughs> yeah there's gonna be a lot of quotes in this show folks <laughs> Almost <laughs> certainly We are finally doing the Quentin Tarantino episode, where we are covering, um, I want to say, I would like to say the wide variety of movies that Quentin Tarantino has had his fingers in, um, but it's not a lot. Uh, They're all just like four and a half hours long apiece. That's the thing. So, oh yeah, Quentin Tarantino, things that he has directed and things that he has written.
1: Never heard of the guy.
0: No? You like him. He did uh, Meat Train to Mozambique.
2: You like his pizzas, Pat.
3: If you like pizzas, you might like the shows on the Podcast Collective, such as
0: Pizza on the Block. <laughs> no pizza for humanity. Dating baggage. <laughs> no no <Mint>. pizza baggage. <laughs> Mint in box cast. Mint in pizza cast. <laughs> pizza box. Really? You leave that one? <laughs> Never mind. And of course, the Rad Dad Radio Hour. I'm three fingers into a bottle of rum right now, man. You can't even. <laughs> Pizza! All right. Yeah. If you're looking for our older stuff, it's on uh, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Talk Shoe, Podverse M, NoonFM.com, and other podcasting directories. You can hear our stuff at Geek Life Radio, 12 noon on Saturdays, and call us, 8 Now Rap, seven eight six six nine nine seven two seven. And somebody did that this week. Yes. Randy did that. Be like Randy. Yes. Be like Randy. Call us. Here's what Randy has to say.
1: Be Randy.
0: Hey guys, this is Randy. Still out here, still listening. Hey, just, uh, first of all, I've got a couple things. First of all, I've got to yell at Joel. Joel, what the hell is wrong with you? Why have you not watched Parks and Rec? I can't believe this. This is an outrage. It's ridiculous. That's just unheard of. Watch it. Uh, secondly, I was uh, listening to the TV show earlier. You guys didn't mention Laser Disc. Pat, I would expect uh, you guys might have had Laser Disc. I did. It was great. And then uh VCR, did any of you guys ever actually program your VCR? I actually got really good at it and was able to record many things that way, and most people always take part of that. But I knew how to program the VCR. And, uh hey, Joel, why don't you go watch Parks and Rec? Uh, let me know how it is, because I've never seen it either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we all have that one or two things that just can't believe we haven't seen so
3: yeah right i've got and i think the main reason we didn't do a deep dive into laser discs and other stuff that could be hooked up to the tv is because we actually did that show specifically like media formats a couple years ago but we kind of had to talk about the VCR when we're talking about stuff that we hook up to the TV.
1: But yeah. I also got pretty good at programming and I could, you know, do like four shows at, in, with one uh, tape, just leave it in all day while I was at school. I got pretty good at it. <laughs> um, but the laser disc thing is interesting. That was the one thing that my dad didn't get. And, the, uh, his best friend, his other, uh, geeky techno lover guy, his uh, best friend from work, they were, uh, he had a laser disc and he was always trying to get my dad to buy one and try and, you know. So. Nice. It was just the one thing my dad just for some reason didn't get into. I think he uh, had enough records as it was, He had enough LPs that he didn't want to start collecting laser discs too.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of storage for those sort of things. but. Exactly. So yeah. I know I wasn't here for the TV show episode, the TV episode, but w- did you guys talk about you, v- VHS recording and all that sort of thing?
1: I got yeah, I mean,
3: we mostly talked about the TVs that we had and TV technology, but we also talked about the stuff you hook up to TV. So we okay. touched a little bit on video game consoles and talked a lot about, like, first Blu-ray players and first VHS, that sort of thing.
2: Okay, yeah. yeah. Like I, combo my, units and stuff.
0: We got a VHS for my grandfather back when he was, like, in the 70s. You know, hooked it up for him, that sort of thing, taught him how to record stuff. And he jumped on that. Like you wouldn't believe every time we would show up, he would have like movies that he had recorded for us. But the thing is, is that he would fall asleep while recording them.
3: Grandpa jumped up on the VHS and fell asleep again. (laughs) Get off the TV,
0: Grandpa. I
1: I know this story. This is so funny. Keep keep telling it.
0: So like one day he come we come over to this house like hey I recorded this back to the future for you back to the future 3 it was. Oh we're like awesome grandpa thank you we take it home we put it in like back to the future okay Marty you got to dress as a cowboy go back to, go in the go to the past and then it it was on like it was on TV so there were commercials so he would pause it. So the commercial came on it paused I'm like okay waiting commercial comes back suddenly Marty is back in the future. And they're at the crazy ass, t- crazy ass uh, train that Doc has. And they're all saying goodbye. Oh, I'm going to miss you, Marty. I'm going to take off now. And then it ends. <laughs> and we're like, what the hell was that?
1: <laughs> well, was it for two thirds of the movie? <laughs> yeah,
0: he fell asleep for like two thirds of the movie in between. He woke up. Oh, okay. The commercial was just ending. So he started recording it. It didn't occur to him that it was only only used like maybe an inch of tape. But the other thing he would do was record cartoons for my little brother. But he didn't realize that the cartoons at the time where we were watching like DuckTales and stuff like that was actually telling a story because he was expecting like Bugs Bunny where it's only like a few minutes long and then it was done type of thing. So he would record Darkwing Duck and you'd get the first 10 minutes of Darkwing Duck and then a commercial would come on. And he wouldn't pause it. He would change the channel. <laughs> so he would... he would Darkwing Duck, cartoons, Commercial comes on, change it, now suddenly you're watching the you know, Pac-Man magic hour, or whatever the hell it was at the time. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> as long as it was
1: a cartoon, it just was fine. Exactly,
0: it didn't matter. So now you're in the middle of that, and you finally figure out what's going on. Commercial comes on, and then a new cartoon comes on. And my, father, my brother was just like, after like an, a half an hour, 45 minutes, he comes over, he's crying. He's like, I don't know why he did this, I don't know. And at the very end, you come on the Darkwing Duck, and you see the end of Darkwing Duck.
2: So. <laughs> So you guys put on RoboCop instead, and
0: he was happy.
1: Yes. Your Robo- grandfather was very, very big on beginning and ending, but not so much middle. Not so much thing. the middle.
0: No. My grandfather so, was also very big. <laughs> so basically, you got the Cliff
2: Notes version of Back to the Future 3. <laughs>
0: Pretty much. He left. He's back. Awesome. So, but yeah. I think it's about that time. It is about that time. He says as he loads up the music. This week in music. Movies and
2: TV.
0: Sports <laughs> Those are very quiet and sports.
2: I know. I realize that. I didn't do the hands over the microphone thing.
0: Oh. Uh, See so you, so you skip out on your regular stuff,
2: you know. Well I was trying I was gonna try and do a a Tarantino themed one, but there was too many N words, so I decided <laughs> not to.
0: <laughs> you just held your foot up to the microphone? What is happening? <laughs> I don't know what that. I don't get that joke. Tarantino and his feet thing. All right.
1: Oh, he, like, he likes uh, feet. He likes yes, feet. Okay. But it, it's got to be Uma's feet.
0: Okay. You know what? Fuck you guys. March twenty seventh, nineteen sixty three. Quentin Tarantino's birthday. There you go. Nineteen
1: sixty three, March twenty seventh. Yes. Joel. Uh, go.
2: Music. The number one song in the land was "The End of the World" by Skeeter Davis.
1: I love that song.
0: Skeeter Davis.
1: Female. I don't think I know that song. Yes, you do.
0: I don't think I know it either.
1: I guarantee you both uh, do.
0: Let's see. Do we know this song?
2: And I feel
0: fine.
2: We have Skeeter I... Davis do another
3: song right now. I think it'd be very appropriate at this point. Oh. And this uh, is is almost the end end of the show, but uh, she sings of the end of the That's
0: world. Not That's not Skeeter why. Davis, no. by the way. This is Yeehaw. I don't know if I know don't this. Know
2: it's the end of the
0: world. Oh, oh there we go. Yeah. Now I know it. Yeah, Told there you. we go. Okay. It's a like, very
2: Tarantino-esque song, by the way.
0: Yeah, that actually I could see that in one of his movies, too. Yeah.
1: But yeah, yes. I love that song.
2: Uh March twenty-second was the release of the first ever studio album by the Beatles titled Please Please Me. It was voted 39th on Rolling Stones magazine. Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Rolling Stone also placed two songs from the album on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. At number 140 was "I Saw Her Standing There," and at number 186 was "Please Please Me."
0: Wow, it's also got "Do You Know? Do You Want to Know a Secret?" Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's just a great it,
1: album. It, it had, I think, six singles that were released, but the the two that caught the most were those two.
0: Ringo Starr and his
1: song "Boys." <laughs> yeah, Ringo was always promised a song and album. <laughs> Just I one. Think my f-
2: you only get one. My favorite, <laughs> I still think my favorite Beatles song, though, is "Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds."
1: Oh, that's like one of my least favorite. Oh, I that
0: yeah, I'm most fat on this one. Not a real big. Uh...
2: Well, I like Sergeant Pepper's in general, the whole album, but that one. Yeah,
1: always... me too. But that's like my least favorite on that whole album, I think.
0: I like I'm lovely. think of what my favorite would be. I like Lovely Rita Metermaid more than Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds.
1: My favorite is Run for Your Life.
0: Mine might be Eleanor Rigby. That's a good one. That's a great one. A Day in the yeah. Life. If, if, are we talking like just off of?
2: No, just in general. In general?
0: Oh, I, I got to think.
2: Like any.
0: Any Beatles song.
2: Paperback writer always makes me think of Matt Brown because that's his favorite. Oh, that's a good one.
0: I really got to think about it because the Beatles have always been a big, big thing in my family. So I don't know if I can nail it down to just one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not confident about my answer, but that's my knee jerk. Right. My I think my first um, I don't even know. I couldn't even because, you know, like my my mom was a huge Beatles fan. So. Did one
3: pop into your mind, even if you weren't confident on it?
0: Well, I mean, the one that popped into my mind always comes up because I think of Beatles. I think of the stupidity of having a band choose a song for the for the mother son dance that we had at my at my wedding.
1: Was it Afternoon Delight?
0: <laughs> no, it was even <laughs> better. It was it was that boy by the Beatles.
1: Oh, and
0: it's nice. like. Here's a great, here's a mother and a son dancing to a song about a guy who steals a girlfriend from another, you know, he has his girlfriend stolen. I'm like, that's kind of weird. It's a little <laughs> strange. Yeah, well, that pretty much sums up my whole existence with my family. But <laughs>
2: uh, Well, moving on then. Susan Ann Sully is a British singer born March 22nd and is one of the two female vocalists of the synth pop group, The Human League.
0: Hmm. They're nice. both only human. Human League is a great band.
1: I don't know about great. I like It's them. a band. It is a yeah. band, yes. No,
0: I, I
2: contributed to their fund.
0: <laughs> you
1: know, I got nothing after that, really. Ten ten dollars has been donated <laughs> to the Human Fund.
2: <laughs> uh, and finally, on March twenty third, at the eighth Eurovision Song Contest held in London, Gre- Greth and Jorgen Ingman of Denmark won singing danceverse. Verse." Dance of Ice.
1: Dance of
0: Ice.
1: Fuck if I know, but the Eurovision Song Contest has gotten us gold before, so I'm hoping that maybe this one—I didn't look this one up, but oh, I was
0: gonna say, no, you got a cue. This I'm shit. on it. I'm on it.
1: because yeah, we've we, we found some gold before with this Eurovision shit. Dance oh. of Ice. We've right. also found some some arsenic, but
2: <laughs> we still haven't come across a.
1: <laughs> the hell! All right, here we
0: go. Let's see, Dance of Ice. I'm going to go I'm i high or to go
1: Is that not English? <laughs> it's
2: Danish, Tommy. Yeah, i It's
1: Danish, I'm
2: that
3: sounded
0: like it was from the Danish soundtrack to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I <laughs> know. I'm like, I'm, I'm look, I have a desire for a dry martini all of a sudden.
3: All right. Moving on to movies. Movie. Or movie. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds was released. Uh, I only have one to say, and I mess up the word released. Let's start again. I have time.
1: You have one sentence. How did you do worse than Joel?
3: I don't know, man. (laughs) I blame the wine I've been drinking since nine (laughs) o'clock. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds was released March 28th and was the top
0: movie in the land. And that is it.
1: That's all there was for movies.
0: Caw, caw. Bang, fuck, I'm dead. dead. (laughs) (laughs) TV. The top TV shows at the time were The Beverly Hillbillies, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and Bonanza. That's a good mix.
1: That actually is a pretty good mix. And Beverly Hillbillies' first couple of seasons, believe it or not, was actually pretty damn funny.
0: Nice, I like it. You know, Beverly dissed on the
1: Billies. It went, it went it went south fast, but it was pretty damn funny the first couple of seasons.
0: Yeah, you can only milk that yak so long.
1: Exactly.
0: Tonight on a very special episode of the Beverly Hillbillies. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: What did Ellie May do? She was tell me and de- tell me in, in in illicit detail.
2: She was at Mister Hooper's bike shop. Jethro nice. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> that's
3: the reference I would have gone for so I approve. So
0: it's also uh, doing? March twenty-ninth was the final episode of the soap opera YDM. I'm pretty sure that's the classic Yanni Dickmaster. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's fantastic. Live at the Acocolis.
1: Yeah.
0: Ooh, nice. Um, this actually ran for how many seasons?
1: It was uh young Dr. Malone, actually.
0: Oh. Yeah, oh no. man, I well, dude, As in Carl? you need to Google Yanni Dickmaster because there's actually a show. <laughs> Sounds like the strangest anime you've ever seen. No,
3: I, it, I
1: actually, uh, sadly, second strangest. Yeah, second sadly, maybe. Used to, used to have to listen to Yanni back in the day. I had an ex that was into Yanni, and mm, me yeah. too. Uh, it ran well, from. I was, I was into her, so I, I, you know, I listened to Yanni at the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh. Like like literally.
1: Oh, yes, god. Literally and, and emotionally.
0: So young Doctor Malone starring Alan Bunce um <laughs> ran from nineteen thirty nine to nineteen sixty.
2: He only gets to first base.
3: Yeah. <laughs> if you're born Alan Bunce, you can pretty much only star in a soap opera or sell couches. Yeah. Well
1: you you can't be a baseball player. Nope.
0: Uh, <laughs> so on uh, March 29th, Ellie McPherson.
1: Or uh, his, Ellie, <laughs> Ellie Jay Jay pronounced, is. JJ what, what was it? <laughs> Ellie McPherson. Ellie McPherson, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah,
0: Elle McPherson. Uh, Australian supermodel, actress, business person, and Victoria's Secret Angel was born.
1: Thank goodness for that.
0: Yes, and she looks much better than Quentin Tarantino.
1: That is setting the bar very low. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gotta get her she still looks good.
1: Yeah, she does. Yeah. Hmm. Moving on to sports. On March 23rd at the 25th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship, Loyola beat the University of Cincinnati 60 to 58 in overtime. Sports. <laughs> um. So, oh, like what did I do? What did I do here? I get. Did one? Yeah. All right. This is all. I, I got. I, okay. Ignore that paragraph. me. <laughs> <Pardon. laughs> That that first paragraph is a typo.
0: This, this this is radio you're looking for, folks, right here.
1: Um, David S. Davy Moore was an American featherweight world champion boxer who fought professionally in the 50s and 60s, racking up an impressive record of 59-7-1 and one the world featherweight title. Moore was scheduled to face Cuban Mexican Sugar Ramos in the July in, in the in July of 1962 at Dodger Stadium but a torrential typhoon-like rainstorm caused a postponement until March 21st. In the eighth round of the fight, after being pummeled and knocked down, Moore got to his feet for the eight count. Despite Ramos's continuing attack, Davey managed to finish the round on his feet, but the referee ended up stopping the fight before the 11th round, declaring a new featherweight champion. Moore was able to give a clear-headed interview before he left the ring, but in the dressing room, he fell into a coma from which he never emerged, and he died 75 hours after the fight on March 25th. Oh, One, nice. two, three,
2: absorbed, Sugar Ramos say, every morning. Oh. <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking
3: something the same joke, and I'm yeah. I'm glad you floated that as a test joke.
2: <laughs> no, that was the actual joke. Oh, I'm less glad.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> the only thing floating was Pat's turd.
1: Oh, it was. No,
0: no we're not going no.
1: to know. A quarterback for the Eagles and the Vikings was born March 27th. Hooray. That is the end of the tweet.
0: Shut the door, baby. Don't say when. <laughs> God.
1: I thought it was don't say a word. Oh, now no, I'm not sure. I think it is don't say a word. So you could be right. Saying, Every morning.
2: Hooray. Shut the door, baby. Don't say a word.
1: Huh? Yeah, that could be. Is that? Is someone looking that up? I am. Because if it says
0: don't say when. What song
1: was that again? Every morning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. It is. Shut the door, baby. Don't say a word. Huh? Oh. I've been mishearing it. Huh.
2: There's a bathroom on the right, Josh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excuse me while I kiss this guy. <laughs> nice. Take us out, keyboard Joel. You no, and no, your no, electric. No,
2: no, no.
0: <laughs> ah, so Joel. Seeing that, what? I think you are probably the most Tarantino fan on this one. Huh. Yes. Okay, that was disturbing. Um, So, Quentin Tarantino, take the lead on this. Tell us about Quentin.
2: Uh, Well, Quentin Jerome Tarantino was born March 27, 1963, as we just discussed. He's an American director, writer, and actor. His films are characterized by nonlinear storylines, satirical subject matter, and a cessation of violence. (laughs)
1: What what just happened? <laughs> Joel I had a stroke. <laughs> he, 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 he just samurai-sorted that word all up.
2: <laughs> Sestatization of violence, <laughs> extended scenes of dialogue, ensemble casts consisting of established and lesser-known performers, references to pop culture, soundtracks primarily containing songs and score pieces from the 60s to the 80s, and features of neo-noir film. He is widely considered, and this is true, to be one of the greatest filmmakers of his generation, which in doing some prep for the show, watching some of the various special features and things and people talking about them, they, uh, Pulp Fiction, they put up there as a genre defining film, not only of 1994, but just in general. Um, and of course a bunch of people after that proceeded to kind of bite on that style. And it became a thing for a while, unfortunately. Uh, but I mean, for only having done eight films to his credit that he directed, Every single one of them has been pretty much allotted, except for Death Proof, unfortunately, which I love. (laughs) Um, And I do have my Grindhouse poster sitting right behind me with Death Proof on it. So Ah. Um, I put a little trivia in here because I like uh, trivia when we do people shows. Uh, He was planning to direct an episode of The X-Files in 1993, but refused to join the Director's Guild of America. So the guild refused his request for a waiver so that he could direct the series. Oh,
0: jeez.
1: Well, he did. He directed two episodes of CSI, so he must have got his DGA card eventually.
2: Uh, he did uh, an ER episode. He did. A, he did a couple things.
1: Oh, yeah. He mu- he must have eventually got
0: it. Or at yeah. one point, they were just like, "We really can't stop him." Maybe. <laughs> He's quite No, a there's no,
1: there's nothing that stops the bureaucracy of a union.
0: Hmm. Except breaks. No, that's what they survive on. Oh. Uh,
2: he was an unlisted screenwriter for Tony Scott's Crimson Tide in 1985. He was brought in to punch up the script's dialogue, reportedly adding the Silver Surfer scene, uh, submarine movie, submarine movie scene. Apparently in a submarine movie, you have to have a submarine movie scene. A racist horse monologue and other polishes. Wait,
0: jump back. Silver Surfer and Crimson Tide? And they weren't conversation. talking yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, because I'm i've seen crimson tide and i'm like i would have remembered that
1: yeah no he was just random uh filler speech he wrote for crimson tide okay
2: which he he was called on a few times he actually um did that with the rock and he also the first one i remember reading about was he he went in and punched up it's just pat really he's friends with julia sweeney
0: hmm
2: he just should have punched it up more
0: (laughs) (laughs)
1: like punched that character completely out of the script (laughs)
2: uh well she made her way into uh pulp fiction
1: true i like julia sweeney i hate pat but i also have a a dog in that fight because for a good decade everybody was doing the whole pat thing to me all the time so it's self-loathing
2: self-loathing
1: no it was pretty it was pretty definitely directed towards the pat character
2: self i can't say self today you can't say a lot
0: of things
1: i know
2: apparently not it's not even october um (laughs) He's he's named after the Burt Reynolds character Quint Asper from Gunsmoke Hmm Which at the time I suppose that makes sense if your parents are big uh, Pop culture fans which would also Lend itself to his uh,
1: Could have been worse I mean they could have named choices. him Bonanza or something <laughs> Haas Haas yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> Did you see the new Haas Tarantino movie? It's fantastic and then finally, the they, big, could have,
1: they could have been big Dick Van Dyke fans and named him Dyke or something.
2: <laughs> Maury. Maury Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> he would have sounded like Woody Allen when he talked. Yeah, he
1: would. Have, he would have had to go into accounting.
2: <laughs> and finally, the Big Kahuna burger, which uh, most people remember from uh, *Pulp Fiction*, was mentioned in at least three of Quentin Tarantino's films. Yeah, I think
3: was, Red Apple cigarettes were at least in two.
1: Damn you! I was gonna. That was my question. I was gonna trivia that one.
2: Um, what? Red Apple.
1: Yeah. I knew you guys were going to get it, but I'm still going to trivia it out there.
2: Yeah, that's another one that he carried over. Because as Mike was talking about pre-show and we were discussing what to include in the then and now, um, he's kind of created his whole uh, universe, even though they don't necessarily tie directly with each other.
3: There's... Almost
1: every, I think almost every one of his movies is set in his little universe, though.
3: Well, there's two universes. There's the real universe that is a little bit more hyper realistic. And then there's the universe that the characters, the characters in his prime universe, the movies they go see. Yeah. Like I forget which one is which, but uh, there's a couple of them where it's like, yeah, this is the Quentin Tarantino prime universe where all of his characters live. And the other one is movie set that
0: his characters would watch in the cinema. So I think, isn't the uh, like the cinema ones like um, uh, Kill Bill? Is that one of those?
3: I think so. Okay. Which is weird because one character crosses over oh. between the two universes. The uh, uh, sheriff, the elderly sheriff, is in both uh, Death Proof and uh, Kill Bill Volume 1. Irma okay.
1: Groh.
2: Yeah. Huh. Played by Michael Parks. Well, then you have some characters that tie directly together, like the Vega brothers. That was a a big thing when everybody got all excited about Vincent. Yeah,
1: still waiting for that movie. Right, it's not gonna happen. I know. Keep waiting. It's it's still good. It's still good.
2: <laughs> but there were I read um and saw it on one of the uh, documentaries that they're the special features thing that originally he was gonna have Madsen reprise the role supposedly before he settled on Travolta, but there's been uh two different versions of that story where he's always wanted Travolta to play the um, the character in Pulp Fiction. But then there's other stories that said that it was originally supposed to be Madsen, but Madsen had some other things going on and ended up being Travolta. So I don't know. Hmm. I prefer to think the, the, uh, the Travolta story over the other, just because that's kind of become his thing. Like he wrote Jackie Brown with Pam Grier in mind and he wrote uh kill bill in mind
1: well, that that was the story he he told all along from the beginning. Was he had he wrote that with Travolta all in mind? And I think maybe at one point he admitted that maybe he that wasn't entirely true. Is what kind of happened?
2: Kind of twisted it a little bit.
1: Yeah, he told it kind of as a as a press type of thing. You know, he's like, oh yeah, I I, I wrote that specifically to bring John Travolta back, and and then later he admitted, well, maybe I did, you know, consider Madsen first. But,
2: but I mean, he championed him from jump i mean he pushed really hard and i remember
1: i I remember everybody getting really pumped up about the fact that travolta was uh was coming back but we'll get to that when we talk about pulp fiction
2: which he senses thanked travolta or thanked tarantino profusely for restarting his career which has promptly gone in the pooper
1: (laughs) which he then, which he then trashed repeatedly
2: right right. he he did well for a while (laughs) and then all of a sudden he kind of I'm a star again. Time for Battlefield Earth.
1: Exactly. That was (laughs) was the beginning of the end was Battlefield Earth.
2: And the end
3: of the end was Adel Dazeem. (laughs) Can we
2: do another Look Who's Talking now?
1: Oh, my God. But strangely enough, man, he is still one of the wealthiest people in Hollywood because he knows how to keep his money. Despite being a Scientologist, that's a whole other story, though. Well, they keep his money for him.
0: (laughs) For when they get
2: Zeta. They're going to need their cash.
1: I mean, he still had two private jets of his own before he even did Pulp Fiction. While he was still a a Hollywood bum, he still had money. Wow. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, Tarantino, at least for me anyway, when I was, uh, you know, well, True Romance was kind of the movie that made me fall in love with filmmaking to begin with. That was the, the linchpin that started the whole ball rolling and what made me love film in general. Um, and I didn't even know who he was at the time, or did I know who Tony Scott or anybody else was? I just loved the film.
1: I remember you were obsessed with that movie in college.
2: Oh, I still love it. And it's, but you know, here's this guy that kind of was somebody to look up to because he, he came from working in a video store and just loved film and wanted to be a part of it and started writing originally was going to be a novelist, uh, wrote a couple chapters of a book, realized that that wasn't the way he wanted to go. And, um, you know,
1: basically Quentin Tarantino is living the, the life that Joel wants. And I'm not trying to, I'm not saying that in like a slap to the face kind of, kind of thing. I'm saying the, 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 like the geeky guy who, who knows how to, knows what cool is, but can't be cool, but knows how to write it <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and loves movies and works, to, you know, works in a video store and, you know, and wants to be a, a screenwriter, a playwriter, all this kind of stuff and finally breaks it. You know so, I mean? everybody everybody wants that big chance wants to you know but I mean this this is like your your dream life you make me feel it's sad like it's no for Joel that now you worship him no.
2: no not at all and you know it, it it is it's one of those things to kind of look up to and here's proof that you don't necessarily have to be a film school genius or you know the top of your class or whatever to be looked upon as uh, you know somebody that's top tier directorial talent because here's a guy that just loved the genre or loved the genre, loved the format, loved the film. And that was his church, so to speak.
1: And And sure as hell hell knows how to, how to write what people want to watch.
3: Exactly. Hmm. I think it was a perfect storm of right man, right moment. Like if Pulp Fiction didn't release when it had, who knows? He might've gotten lost in the shuffle of other directors.
0: True. And I think, but I think the one thing he has going for him is dialogue-wise, he is um he is amazing, he really is. I mean, it's the conversations that he writes into his movies. I mean, think about the uh, uh, quarter pounder conversation in the car in, in Pulp Fiction.
1: Well, well, he he writes conversations <laughs> less like natural conversations and more like a dance.
0: Yeah, you get well,
1: like fancy. somewhere
3: between oh, it's not quite a stage conversation. But not quite as natural as like some of Kevin Smith's stuff.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, Kevin Smith is definitely much more realistic in his in in his uh, conversations in his movies. But Tarantino, like I like I said, it, I mean, it, there there's definite rhythm and and bounciness and like you know it's it, like I said, it's like a dance, you know, because they're not just talking subjects; they're also you know just talking around each other. You know, it's it's like a whole. Uh, well like a dance <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> well it's very kinetic i think is yeah the, that's, that's a good word. word because when there's not really any action happening you're still riveted to the screen with what's going on and and when we get to the hateful eight that's a prime example of it but even even just the diner scene in reservoir dogs when the camera's circling them as they're talking about pretty much nothing
1: and yeah. it's a bunch of disjointed conversations but they flow together so well
2: Well, and
3: like everything he does, it's hyper stylized. Like the content of the conversation is very similar to something Kevin Smith might write, but you've got that Tarantino hyper stylized okay, this is what they're talking about, which is basically random pop culture bullshit, but we're still going to make them talk about it in a cool way.
1: And you're going to get glimpses into everybody's personality in in the way that they converse with each other.
2: Yeah. And that's very true. I mean, you can discern each person's Specific personality traits just by the way that they say the things they say, and they each have their own distinct voice. There's no, every character has a backstory, even if you don't even know what it is.
3: Yeah, I think we'd have discovered Tarantino even if he hadn't been a megastar, but like the world knew who he was after Pulp Fiction
1: mm-hmm. for sure. But and a lot back, of people, oh, we need to back it up a little bit and you know, and let's go chronologically. Uh, yeah,
3: sure. Yeah, let's start talking about the specific films, right? Yeah, so
1: Joel. So, so, The first one is My Best Friend's Birthday, and none of us have seen that. It was done in 1987. Um, Was that widely released? What's the deal with that? No.
2: As far as I know, it's never been released, period. Um,
1: But but it's listed in IMDb?
2: Yeah, because (laughs) – well, he's got two films that are listed prior to this, one that was unfinished and has since been destroyed. But this one, the reason that I left it in there was it's his first full-length kind of film – and it was basically the the basis for True Romance, oh. um, it, it loosely, but
1: <laughs> kind of kind of took it and turned it into True True Romance. Written right. and starring
0: Quentin Tarantino, that's true. Uh, that's exactly so. What yeah, it true,
1: is. true Romance still not 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 his first directory mm. directorial. Uh, that was Reservoir Dogs, but he did write True Romance. So go ahead. And That's
2: what he used to fund, because Tony Scott directed it. Ridley's brother. And he used that money to help fund himself while he was getting Reservoir Dogs off the ground and getting okay. that produced. Because all he had at the time was live uh, entertainment was wanting to distribute it and liked what they read and wanted to help you know, back it. But he didn't really have much studio and he's never really wanted a lot of studio participation anyway. But um, he was kind of on his own in a lot of respects because he wanted to direct it. He wanted to be part of it, and a lot of the big studios were like, "I don't know who this person is, but everybody kind of that like read this, it."
1: Kind of like the Sylvester Stallone story. With kind Riley. of, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, sometimes it works out great when you, you know, stick to your guns and you stick to your principles. And then, but the sad fact is, there's plenty of people in Hollywood waiting tables that stuck to their principles and got chewed up.
0: Right. No,
2: have you seen like it? You you wonder
0: how
1: many Quentin Tarantino's are out there still?
0: Right. What's
2: that, Joel? <laughs> Have you seen this one, Mike? I don't...
0: I... What? Uh, true Romance? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it recently, but I have seen it, and I did enjoy it, because I am, you know, the, uh, I think the first time I saw it was you, with you, uh, you made me watch it, and I'm, since I'm a big, I like Christian Slater, uh, you know, I, it was an easy, I easy
1: think draw. He I think you set everybody aside at one-on-one and made them sit down with him and watch it at one point or Yes. Another.
0: Hello, I am Joel. Come with me.
1: <laughs> this is your true romance moment. Come with me. <laughs>
0: Um okay. And everybody,
1: every, you know I I got all excited. I like put some cologne on and everything. I thought it was going to be special, but it was a movie.
3: It um, wasn't special for you?
1: It was not as special as I thought. You know when he told me it was going to be the true true romance moment, I really got worked up.
0: Now what's funny is even
2: <laughs> even though
0: I like how Joel just brushes over that with no comment <laughs> whatsoever.
2: I don't I, want you guys to know what happened at each of your viewings. Um I got tongue. <laughs> the thing is is that despite it not being his film per se he he, just strictly in 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 authorship it still reads like a tarantino movie um tony scott put his own stamp on it so it's not got a lot of the earmarks that you know that that his direct directorial movies have
0: a lot of feet yeah i was gonna say no feet (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know just like the
2: like the the speech that uh um, Dennis Hopper has when Christopher Walken is holding him, you know, pumping him for information about where uh, his son is. That is you such know, a great scene. That's totally Tarantino. Uh,
3: I s- mentioned that we were doing this show to a uh, colleague who I, I started working with 10 years ago and am now at the new job working with again. I mentioned we were doing Tarantino and we talked about True Romance. And he made an interesting point that – if you'd taken this film and made it five years later, considering the cast that's in it, you would have had to spend like $200 million on just casting.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Totally true. Well, look how many people from that have had illustrious careers before and after.
1: It, it'd be like trying to cast Freaks and Geeks right now. Holy cats, that would be ridiculous.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're basically paying Brad Pitt to sit
2: on a couch stoned and talk like twice.
1: Right? <laughs>
2: and have Val Kilmer never fully seen and Elvis get up.
1: And you have to resurrect Dennis Hopper. That's not as difficult right, as you, difficult could still as you would Val think. You to
0: do that. He'd just be fat Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> um, Strangely enough, this is the third Val Kilmer conversation I've had today. <laughs>
1: Stop talking um, about me so much.
0: Remember when you were Batman? I yeah, still,
2: man. I still love this movie. I, I don't sit people down to to force them to watch no. it anymore. But
1: you almost made me do a smoke take.
2: It's, I still love it. And it, it, like I said, it was it was my gateway drug to film in general. So I, I think he succeeded in what his goal was. You know, to be a filmmaker and to share that passion with everybody. It worked on me. So cool.
3: I tried unsuccessfully to uh introduce Sarah to this film last night and she just did not feel like watching it so
0: <laughs> it definitely no. is a movie you have to be either in the mood for or in our case forced to watch by Joel <laughs> sit watch
1: so yeah <laughs> moving on to reservoir dogs his first uh his directorial debut this we- movie blew my face off the first time i saw it because um, it was like the first time I'd ever seen a movie, a heist movie told like kind of out of order, and it, and it just fascinated me.
2: Didn't we all watch this together in your room on um the Cave and X and the period? That seems or, likely.
1: Yeah. yeah, 100%, we did. But I I um I had already seen it at that point. I I think I was uh, the one who told you guys to watch it. If I'm correct.
2: Because the first time I saw it, it was with you guys. And I didn't really, you know, at that point, I was still fledgling. So I didn't know anything about it other than that it was awesome. (laughs) I don't know. I got a picture.
1: At that point, I didn't, you know, and the same as you with True Romance, I had no idea who Quentin Tarantino was. I had no idea, you know, know, that it was in any way associated with True Romance. It was just, I was like, this movie is awesome. I need to, you know, we need to watch this.
0: Well, and it was one of those where we were like, Harvey, who?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, you know, I didn't know any of the people in there. I just knew this was a fucking great movie.
3: This uh, movie was fundamental enough to my college experience that uh, for a wedding immediately post college, all of the groomsmen were photoshopped in to a uh, picture of the various characters. I was nice guy Eddie, <laughs> nice. and my groomsmen gift had the uh, photoshopped picture and a bunch of lighters and the quote about the Chicago fire.
2: <laughs> oh, very nice. cool. You know something fun about this is the copy that I eventually bought after we watched it and, and fell in love with it. Um, I didn't realize at the time because uh, I wasn't—it wasn't as important to me that it was a that full screen version. So the first like 50 times that I saw this movie, it was the full screen version of the oh, film. Oh
1: man, yeah.
2: This <clears throat> so
1: is a, this is a movie you miss so much if you're not watching the white screen. Yeah.
2: Exactly. When I watched, when I finally bought the 10th anniversary. Edition of it on DVD, and I sat down and I watched it in letterbox. I went, holy shit, this is an entirely different movie. Yeah, it, it, it was a completely different experience, and I've since now got that, it on blu
1: warehouse set takes on an entirely different uh, feeling when you get yes. it in, in widescreen. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. it's it's not nearly as it's because uh, it's very claustrophobic in the in the the widescreen, and there's so many like closer up shots that it feels. But then in, the, in in I'm sorry in the full screen, but in the widescreen, there's a lot more space to to kind of live in. There's a lot more ambient sounds. There's a lot more I don't know, just everything about it just felt totally. T- it was like seeing a brand new movie. It was
1: crazy. And you know, like most Tarantino movies, it has so many quotable lines in it. One of them, one of my favorites that I use a lot is you know, going into work and I'm like, it looks like Joe's hot car lot out there.
2: <laughs> yep. But here's another movie where even though it's a heist film and it's it's, quote unquote, maybe an action movie in some regards, there's not a lot going on. It's really all about them talking with each other about what happened. You only get a couple of glimpses of the actual
0: heist oh, itself. Yeah. the I mean, the whole the whole thing, the movie doesn't really start rolling until after they do it. And then it's not like a whole, you know, you would expect. You hear, I mean, if you were to say Reservoir Dogs, oh, it's a heist movie, you know, you expect this whole them being chased down, wondering when the cops are coming. Instead, you get forty-five minutes of conversation,
1: and you you barely see any of the of the planning of the heist.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, it's a heist movie that's not at all all about the heist.
0: No, no, it's about how the how the heist Is that?
1: It's it's really about about uh, the the undercover cop is what it you know yeah without without him it 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 would be a heist movie they would they would have gotten away with it
2: and the other thing was um I was watching a thing about um that and they talked about how originally in the script everybody was going to get away that was originally Hmm. how it ended and uh, during the course of you know everything that happens with the film they opted for the ending that they they went with which I think is a lot more satisfying. But um, I remember when we were still living in Chicago, um, I don't remember who I was with, but I went to a T-shirt shop downtown and I bought I was I bought a uh, Reservoir Dogs T-shirt. And um, I don't know if I still have it in the basement or not, but I wore the shit out of that shirt a lot.
3: Oh, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Because I can't remember the name of the place.
3: Oh, I was just going to say there's the classic debate about the ending over whether any of them really gets away true I'd, I'd,
2: I'd say no
1: no yeah i mean if you turn the volume up at the very end you can hear them giving instructions to mr pink get on the ground you know blah 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 and he gets arrested
3: well no. I, it sounds like he uh refuses to go out and he gets gunned down
1: yeah yeah there's a shootout and you don't really know if he gets gunned down or if he's running or whatever but yeah
3: and that's the thing is that's the argument of, of whether it's a total party
1: kill or whether he gets arrested
2: i don't know who's shot i don't know who's got. Or, no, that's not the line.
1: No, yeah, maybe, you know, oh, yeah, maybe he's caught, maybe he's shot, maybe he's dead, maybe he's alive, you know, whatever. Yeah, how, what is that line?
0: I I don't know. I cannot, I'm drawing a blank right now. Yeah. All I know is that, why can't we choose our own names? Because everybody wants to be Mr. Fucking Black.
1: You got got three guys fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black, and nobody's going to back down because they don't know each other.
2: (laughs) Did you get some fries while you are out there? (laughs) I had those in the car.
1: So what about the <laughs> there's, two, there's two ways my way or the highway.
0: And what Mike? Oh, I was gonna say, wasn't this there was a I from what I remember reading is that um this was based off of a Japanese movie. Is yeah. that true? <laughs> yeah, City um, on Fire City on Fire.
1: Tarantino that's very likely. City
2: on fire. A Chow a Chow Yun fat film, I own it, and um it's it's loose. It's not is it, a isn't that
1: one Mainly about him as an undercover cop, City on Fire?
2: It's the, the two biggest connections between the two are the, the style, and so much as that they all wear black suits with black ties and white shirts. They look very much like the characters, and there is a, a heist and there's a, a scene in a warehouse, but there's a whole lot more going on, a lot more action, a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more sets and things. It's not just all taking place in one warehouse. Mm-hmm. So it's
1: it, it's more it's of like loose. a like a blockbuster type of action movie. Yeah.
2: Uh, it's it's more like a a Departed than it is a you know like a uh, Heat.
1: Okay. Okay.
3: Yeah, it's like a tiny portion of City on Fire, a, a very compelling slice of it, was spun off and expanded into its own separate thing, and you've got Reservoir Dogs
0: out of that. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. I got gotcha. you. I gotcha. It's like he saw it and he got inspired. Have to, have to thank him for the uh, slow motion walk to Little Green Bag.
2: Yeah. <laughs> How many of us have done that? Oh. That was another thing, man. When we bought the soundtracks for this, we used to play them all the time on the floor.
0: Oh, so yeah. So good. All right. So after this, we've got Natural Born Killers, where he was the writer for this one. Um, Joel, I think you made me sit down and watch this one, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Pretty
0: sure I saw this one
2: in the theater. Yeah, uh, you saw it in the theater with me and Antoine. Yep. And then we came back. We stopped by Jordan's to see Ashlyn, and we we like when we left the theater. And I'll never forget this. We left the theater for like 15 minutes. Nobody said a word. And then as soon as we started talking about it, we didn't shut up for like two weeks.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it has not aged as well as some of the other stuff, in my opinion.
1: I was never a fan of this movie. I thought it was a little. It was too much you know how i love the over-the-top satire
2: but the thing is is if oliver stone hadn't turned it into his uh you know college experimental film which i'd still love the movie so i, I don't mean that in a negative way but if it would have been if tarantino would have held on to it and made it himself it's it's essentially it's a road movie
1: i probably would have liked it much more if tarantino had directed it
0: there's some moments of brilliance that are still great. I love the diner scene, mm-hmm. and the ridiculousness of like when they go to what her childhood was like with Rod, uh, Rodney Dangerfield as the dad, and it turns into a whole um sitcom. sitcom
3: yeah. yeah, really creepy sitcom. Yeah, yeah. No, I
0: mean, I mean it,
2: oh god. Oh, I was just gonna say. I mean, it, though at its core, it is just like from Dust to Dawn. I mean, it's it's a it's a road movie that. Just uh, Stone went a little haywire with. Well, you've
1: got two guys, which is just unprecedented for him. Yeah, I know, right?
0: (laughs) we were gonna say, Mike? Sorry, I was gonna say. Well, you've got Oliver Stone and Quentin Tarantino, and that's like you over the top is like the theme.
1: You're not gonna get Lake Wobegon.
0: (laughs) Garrison
2: Keeler's natural born killers. (laughs) Dude, I would watch that. I love
0: you, Mickey. Uh, On Golden Pond and Natural Born Killers crossover.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, he, I mean, he, he sold the script and it helped to fund, uh, you know, to get Pulp Fiction underway. So, I mean, love it or hate it. I mean, it's still, I still enjoy it and I've bought it a couple different times. um, But, you know, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea.
0: All right. So. After yeah, that. Yeah, we'd better get to this one. Yeah, this is gonna <laughs> take a pulp fiction. Um Hate it. what? Uh, it! I kid. I kid. So this is the I remember the trailer coming out over the summer. But when was it? I don't know when this one was released, but I remember my my memory of this one is seeing the trailer and then immediately coming back to school with you guys and be like, did you see that? You know,
1: this is oh, my, Okay my this is what this is my pulp fiction uh, baptism. Uh, we're sitting up in the in the dorm hallway, whatever, playing magic, I'm sure, or whatever. And Josh comes in, and he's like, "Dude, dude, we have to go to the movies right now. I just saw this movie, and I'm going. We're going again right now." <laughs>
3: Every person I encountered who had not seen it, I dragged right back to the Lake Theater and watched it again for like the first two weeks it was out.
1: Yeah. You, me, Joel, Jay, and uh, there was one other person.
2: It was my dad.
1: Was it? Wow. Yes.
2: He hated it. (laughs) We saw Pulp Fiction with your dad? We did. I Although remember.
3: I think you saw it with me twice, because I think you saw it before I uh, took Jay and Pat and my dad, but I think you went that time as well.
2: I remember seeing it with you. I just I uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw it twice yeah.
1: almost. I, every was, I, was sitting, I, I was sitting right next to Josh. Uh, you were on my left, and that scene when Uma made this the the square sign. I, look, I looked over at you. I was like, "What the fuck?" He just laughed. You're like, "Yeah." <laughs> But yeah, that that was the first time I ever saw it, and I've this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's in my top ten. Um, I love this movie. I have a giant uh six foot by five foot poster of Uma, the, nice. the one of the cover <clears throat> of her like looks like the cover of the magazine. Okay. Yeah, it's like a, a, a big steel lithograph print. It's like really really nice. Very cool. Yeah, it hangs usually hangs on my wall, but unfortunately right now is uh sitting with all my other. No.
3: Yeah. And a lot of people had the same reaction I had to it, where it was just like, I have to introduce every person I've ever met to this film. And strangely, it's only my second favorite Tarantino mo- movie. <laughs> <laughs> hmm.
1: Yeah, I know which one's your favorite. And yeah,
2: we all know about that.
1: But yeah, uh, um, this this movie is, is I mean, my, even my father loved it. And my father is I would not say that this is in my father's wheelhouse, but, you know, he it was one of his favorites, too um it's just a, a almost a perfect movie really
0: hmm i think this is where you really got the introduction to him on the circular storytelling yeah you know i mean that's very non western uh,
1: wh- and it, it it sounds so cliche to say but i mean i've i've seen the version you know, where it's done chronologically and the it's a, just a completely different movie as far i mean without you know even knowing what the spoilers are with, without the it being told in this, in the style that he edited it to. Mm-hmm. It's it's a completely different movie.
0: Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's one of the things that I noticed about it. It's like when with you've got this whole it the first time I saw it, it was one of those how to put it, it was like, what the hell just happened? Why am I back here again type of thing? And then realizing that he's got that. I actually looked into it for the uh for the show. It, it's it's more of an eastern like Almost um, like like Jewish and Hebrew type of way of telling stories where you have this circular where the story goes around, comes back again to a focal point and then recircles again back around. And you even see it. I mean, I noticed it even back when I was watching the, uh, the Hateful Eight earlier today, um, which I think is fantastic. I really do. I mean, he's he's got a great it's not like it's cliche. He does it and he does it well.
3: Yeah and you've got kind of the stories crossing in and out of each other so you can piece it together it's not a true like he plays with chronology in reservoir dogs but it's a little bit more mainstream where it's like we're at the end and we're going to flash back right right and this it, it's you see it again in stuff like sin city uh you see it again in uh oh, what's a halloween movie halloween no. No, the the one with the circular story, episodic storytelling. Um
1: Trick or treat?
3: Trick or treat. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, the one we did for the yeah, for the
3: show. Yeah. And so but, yeah, a lot of other directors have said, yeah, this is something we want to try to do.
1: And and you know, one of the one of the best things about this particular movie and the way he told the story is in the very final scene when they're having they're having their breakfast, you know, and they're talking about, you know, can't, he, he's like, you're going to be a bum and all that kind of stuff. Josh, I remember you talking about after the movie, like, one of your favorite things about watching it over and over again with different people was watching and seeing when it clicked with people that they were in the same restaurant as Honey Bunny and Pumpkin and see how long it took people to before it for Suddenly, you know, if anybody clicked to it before, you know, before the robbery started.
2: Mm-hmm. Well- and this was, I mean, it was a hard sell initially for him to, to get it made. And then once people saw it, this was a new concept to a lot of people. Because prior to that, I mean, you may have had little bits here and there, but not in this kind of... I'd, I'd love to see it all pieced together like you're talking about. I'm sure somebody must have edited it and then released it as a linear version of it.
1: Yeah, it's on YouTube. That's where I saw it.
2: I, I think that'd be interesting to watch, but
1: it it, de- it definitely affects the story and the flow i mean it it sounds so uh, pedantic almost to say that but i mean really i mean it, it 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 it's such a different movie when it's just told chronologically
2: but it 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 changed the landscape of of filmmaking i mean at the time in 94 after this there's a, a huge glut of movies that i mentioned earlier that kind of tried to adopt the same thing and and as you guys were saying he has kind of mastered that in a way that it it's not forced it's not a a device it's just the way he tells the story
1: i i've discussed this before on other shows we've had about how i don't like things that are just cool for cool's sake and all that stuff and i don't like highly stylized no substance and and that's one of the things that he manages to toe the line very well on it's like there's a you know he does a lot of stuff you know like he, he does a lot of verbal coolness you know for cool's sake but it works. He, he's good at it, and you can see in a lot of the carbon copy movies out there that it, it it is a skill because a lot of these movies, like um, I've mentioned this one before too. Go, I mean, it's a ripoff of of a you know of Pulp Fiction in a way, as far as like the nonlinear storytelling and the cool characters and the too hip to you know you know lingo talking and all that kind of you know rapid fire discussions. But it's just it's a weak version, and you you can tell that you know. Tarantino is the originator and the, and the what would be the word I'm looking for the not the best at it I guess but I mean twinkie sounds, What? Twinkie. Yes <laughs> that is definitely the word I'm looking for. Now star crunch I think was the word I was looking for. The, he's the star crunch of it.
2: That's a new phrase. Um plus everything about it just oozes uh, style and and I don't mean uh, you know like a But I mean, it just has its own feel to it, and everything is pretty, and everything um, is—it's—it's his own world that he kind of creates in our own, Um, and every scene is just you you can't look away from what's happening.
1: And and Uh, it's it's one of those movies that you know, every time you watch it, you'll—you'll pick up on something new. Like for instance, um, who keyed—who keyed his car? Butch. There you go.
3: Yeah, I I may have seen it too many times to catch it. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Whose motorcycle is this? It's a chopper, baby. Whose chopper is this? Zed. Who's Zed? Zed's dead,
0: baby. Zed's dead. Well, and then now that you're doing that, Joel, another thing that I love about Quentin's movies is that when you get the soundtrack, I think pretty much 99% of them have the, quote, bridge between the songs
1: yeah there's dialogue
0: mm-hmm. there's I mean how yet. how much I mean, if if you were it was possible to wear out a CD we would have personally worn out how many copies of the of the pulp fiction CD while we were in college and
1: reservoir dogs and, and reservoir I'm, dogs yeah i'm hungry let's get a taco <laughs> yeah oh,
0: yes. i mean that's i mean that is the a part of it is i love his music even all, all the way down to when i was watching uh hateful eight today the music in it is obscure, but amazingly focused on the scenes.
1: His his soundtracks are just as good as his movies. He, I mean, that, and and they're so integral together.
0: Right. So, yep. after Pulp Fiction, he did Four Rooms, and an, an the, anthology film with yes. uh, three other directors. Right. This
1: was a movie we saw together as well.
0: Yeah, we saw this in um, Elmhurst at the Elmhurst Theater. That's right. It's one of the few I've seen there. Yeah, went to and see his, that one.
2: His and, particular film is the one with uh, Bruce Willis. Yeah, with the uh, the finger cutting off scene. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I and, don't,
1: yeah, I don't remember much about it. I just remember that we saw it.
0: Yeah, it was good. Um, it's fun. He he was, you know, it's one of those where you get to see Quentin at his acting best. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I get, He's a great director, but dude, I mean, no, if.
1: As, a, if, as an actor, he's a great director.
0: Yes, yes. If uh, <laughs> if he was, if his acting was turned into food, no Jew could eat it. <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean, there's there's been several movies where he's taken a, a a more leading role where he's not been a writer in it, like Sukiaki Western Django that was done by, uh, I think it was a Takeshi Mikae movie or Destiny Turns on the Radio, which was a late '90s. He's he's the lead character one of two and yeah I, I I still love watching him because he's very charismatic I mean, he wasn't, he,
1: he wasn't but, bad in From Dust Till Dawn
2: no no he he was good as 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 uh, was it Richie yeah. yeah Um, and well and his role in Pulp Fiction even was was fun to watch I have a uh, an action uh, Funko Pop of him sitting on my desk with a cup of coffee in his robe
0: <laughs> nice. nice my favorite
2: pop i love it but anyway speaking of from dust on
0: my memory of this is us all of us going to the theater to see it i don't know which theater we went to go see it but i remember dragging suzanne along yep. and she was like i don't want to see a horror movie i don't want to see." i'm like it's not a horror movie it's, it's a road not, movie it's a road <laughs> movie it's like a it's like a heist movie next thing you know blood squirting everywhere <laughs> and she, but the thing is this is this is where i knew i i knew she was a girl i looked at her and she goes I don't know why I'm laughing at this. <laughs> and that's the thing, like he, with the writing of Dustal Dawn, I mean, it is ridiculous. But the writing and the action of this, the way he had it all set up was you're horrified and laughing at the same time with this one.
3: And I'll admit, I like the obviously Quentin bits more than I like the Robert Rodriguez bits. Like I love just the Gecko brothers in the Road movie and the tension about the family. That Who's whole regarding...
1: scene in the in the convenience store. Yeah,
3: oh, yeah, like all of that is awesome. I like the vampire stuff, but to me, the superior portion of the movie is that beginning opening and the setup.
1: I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite real quick. This is a quick story about this movie. Is uh, my sister was on a, a a date or something i can't remember. she she was at the movies with the, you know to see this movie and she went to go get a refill of popcorn as they were <laughs> hit, as they were pulling up at the twi- titty twister so she comes <laughs> back into the movie and suddenly it's like a vampire movie and she's she's like did i walk into the right theater <laughs> <laughs>
3: Sounds like Joel was going to respond
2: to my statement well correct me if i'm wrong but cuz i know we all saw it together again and i want to say it was at the um Oakbrook um, theaters where we saw The Matrix, but uh, we all went into it thinking it was a road movie. We None of us knew that it was going to flip like it did. No, none No,
3: I don't right? think any of us, no, yeah, we all, we any of us knew vampires.
2: Because <laughs> we we were like, oh, Quentin Tarantino, we're like, oh, Robert Rodriguez, we got to go see this. We went like opening weekend before anything was really known about it and I think all of us were sitting in the theater going, what the fuck just happened?
1: Yeah, when it all started, we were all looking at each other like, what the hell? <laughs>
2: But you're right, I mean, and I think that's why the, the series, when we did the show on the, on this for the series, worked so well, is that you got more of the Gecko Brothers, which I think that's what all of us kind of wanted. Um, and Clooney and Tarantino together really worked well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of that's the writing, and I think part of it's the direction of, of the two of them, and the fact that they both kind of committed to those roles.
1: And you know, Clo- Clooney's breakout movie role.
2: It it uh, definitely didn't hurt, and he's he's badass. But I think the reason Tarantino worked as an actor in this is because he's a little bit more toned down. He's not as Tarantino. He's this not...
1: is sorry. Talk, talk about the quotes. You know how to, how to you know the, how many of his movies are quoted. This is a, I use one from this movie all the time. It's I'm an asshole, but I'm not a fucking asshole.
2: But you know he's not turned up to eleven. You know he's not. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> no, he's not. Yeah,
2: he, he he's very dialed down. He's, he barely has too many lines, and when he does, it's so restrained that it's just creepy.
0: Yeah. I yeah. do have to say one of the coolest moments of the movie is when, is, after everything is done, they come out of the Titty Twister, and, and uh, Clooney takes off his shirt, and you see that huge-ass tattoo across his whole body. Baby.
1: And that was, like, one of the very first ever, like, tribal tattoos that would... Uh before like every every CrossFit guy had you know had
0: yeah, I know before it became douchebaggy.
1: Yeah. I was I was gonna leave that descriptor up to you.
0: Douchebaggy? He was on or Scooby what Doo. I, what? Douchebaggy.
1: <laughs> it wasn't me. I remember douchebaggy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and finally before the break.
3: Yeah, we've got my personal favorite Quentin Tarantino, and I know I'm in the minority on this. Yes. But uh, yeah, Jackie Brown, 1997, and the reason I love it so much is because Tarantino is one of my all-time favorite directors, and it was an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard book called Rum Punch, and Elmore Leonard is one of my all-time favorite writers. So this was a perfect storm for me. This was like made for me. It's even got my last name in the title. (laughs) Nice.
0: But so, yeah. Mike, this was your first time seeing it for the show. Yeah, this is the first time of me seeing it at all. Yeah. Um, I was not. I, I think I, I texted you guys when um when I was watching it, and my statement was, "This is the most un Tarantino movie I've ever seen." I mean, well, it's got the theme of Tarantino. It wasn't until you told me that it was a uh, Elmore book that it made sense. Um, it's, it's a lot more sedate than I was expecting it to be. You know what I mean? It was a lot more, it wasn't so much over the top, but it was very, um, super cool is the best way to describe it.
3: Both of them like making stories about these interesting characters, highly flawed, often criminal types, and then setting them on a collision course until they're all pointing guns at each other. Mm hmm. And yeah, this was probably the most Tarantino ish of the Elmore Leonard books. So, and it's also, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Clooney and Jennifer Lopez movie out of sight.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Love it.
3: Well, I mean, they're both connected. Yep.
2: Because, well, even, uh,
3: Michael Keaton plays the same character in both. Yep. I, Michael Keaton was so fucking awesome in that. And that's the thing is he's this vague, just a tiny bit stupid, kind of douchebaggy
0: h uh, fbi agent in both films nice and but the thing is i i'm you guys also know i'm a huge michael keaton fan mm-hmm. uh i i did not know he was in this and in it while watching it it was like i was expecting him to be bigger but it, he played such a i don't want to say minor part but a low key part you know he wasn't he wasn't like super um uh lynchpinish to the whole to the whole thing but I, I thought, I mean, just the writing in this was great. I mean, it was so much better than I was expecting it to be. Because occasionally on the Tarantino movies, when they are super Tarantino esque, I get kind of turned off by him. I could see that. You know, when the when the Tarantino uh, gets, you know, when that gauge goes to eleven, you know, more than like like with you know, natural born killers would be a good way, um, a good Death way to proof. describe it. Death proof, very Tarantino esque. Um that gets that far up into the so cool weirdness type of thing that I get turned off by it. But this one I said I you know it was a very I hate to use it, but groovy film.
3: I also this is another controversial statement. I also think it's maybe the performance of Robert De Niro's career.
1: Oh, get the fuck out of here.
3: No, seriously, <laughs> like the combination of like sadness And you usually see him playing these really cool altogether guys. Louis Gara is a fuck up and he knows it and he knows that he screwed up, but he's so sad and messed up from his time in prison and wanting to be the guy he used to be and falling so short. I just love his character in this.
0: I have to back. I have to back up Josh on this one. I like, I agree with you on that because He's um, he's completely not what you would expect him to be when you hear that he's in the movie and he well, still pulls it off at a, as an amazing, uh, amazing version of it.
2: One of the other things about that is that um, he's he he uses so much body language in it to portray his time in prison and his kind of like Josh was describing. He he, he does it without saying a whole lot. I mean, he's got dialogue, but so much of it is just the way he physically, you know, plays that character that you can just read it on him from a mile away. And Josh, I don't know if you know this or not, but originally uh, Tarantino was going to do Freaky Deaky and then opted for Run Punch um, after he had had a run in with um, Pam Greer and wanted to write something for. Oh, I could see
3: that. I mean, and I think that Run Punch is a little better than Freaky Deaky. But, but that was his original choice.
2: That was what he was working on initially, and then he switched, switched gears. So, but yeah,
3: I, he even managed to rein in Chris Tucker for this
0: <laughs> early on. Yeah, early. out Chris, Chris Tucker into the back of a back of a uh, sedan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, I this, it, this is not my least favorite necessarily of the bunch. It it I don't hold it in, in as high a regard as Josh does. Although, every time I see it, I gain a little bit more love for it. And I think when you do it as a, a double feature without of sight, which I absolutely love, um, that that whole, uh, there's a world created with Elmore Leonard that is consistent throughout, even though there are two totally different directors, two totally different casts. And then if you throw in you know Get Shorty into the mix, you know you kind of get this whole world, and yeah. it's 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 really a, a fun place to kind of live in. And I, I, I do like this movie a lot. I just, um, for some reason, it never quite hit me the way it did for you. Yeah,
3: I want so badly for Max Cherry to get together with Jackie, <laughs> knowing it's never going to work.
0: Hmm. Robert right. Forster is so great in that role. But yeah, so uh, we are coming up on the end of the then, 1997. There's nothing until 2003 where we come on to the two-part Kill Bill Uh Volume 1, Volume 2. Uh, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will be back with uh, The Bride in Yellow. Alright, we are back into the Tarantino-verse, and we are stepping into one of the his only uh, double-volume movie. Kill Bill, Volume 1. Yeah, I mean, originally,
3: this was just supposed to be like a four-hour movie. But the studios were like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that, that's how the meeting actually, Yeah, <laughs> What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> it's been six years since Jackie Brown.
1: <laughs> Come on, Quentin. I remember hearing that he was going to be making a movie starring Uma Thurman as a samurai warrior. And I was like, Eh, I don't know about that. And, and you were proven wrong. I was definitely proven wrong. Mm-hmm. This is
3: also the movie that ruined his relationship with Uma Thurman. What? Really? Oh, he he pushed her into doing a stunt that almost killed her. Which one? Uh, it was in the ca- It was in a car. Oh, that one.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I wish I had more details.
1: I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I just watched this because my sister my sister hadn't seen either of them, so
2: it I was watched. that scene where she's in the car and she's trying to wiggle her toes.
1: Yeah, how and could I'm that? Kidding. That's the only one that I can. Yeah,
2: I think it was
3: just her in the convertible. Yeah, the uh, convertible that she was in in a lot of little black and white scenes were uh, was kind of a rat trap.
1: Yeah, I mean she she they had her going pretty fast on some of those roads in the.
3: Yeah, forty miles an hour down a curved, sandy Mexican road, Yeah. and uh, she got a concussion, uh, messed up both of her knees, and almost killed her. Wow. Hmm.
1: But yeah, I mean, worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, really, actually, not because those scenes, you know, they, they they could have slowed her down a little bit. It wasn't that necessary, but stylistically, you know, they could have just sped it up post-production, whatever.
2: All camera tricks or something.
1: Yeah. Not necessary to beat her up in, in, you know, on on some remote Mexican road. Bad on you, Quentin.
0: Almost, his yeah. getting his uh, Hitchcock on in that one.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> there, there, there's a long history in Hollywood of of directors that like to abuse their actors. He doesn't seem to usually be one of them. You don't hear a whole lot of complaints about him. Well,
3: and you didn't hear about it because what really pissed her
0: off was the cover up that followed. Hmm. On an on a unrelated note, this is made by the Weinstein Company.
1: Oh. Most of his movies were. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: What? Too soon? I
1: mean, no. it's just you know th- there could have been worse things that happened to her. I guess.
0: Yeah. Like Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Joel, hey, tell us a little bit I about I this.
1: have to watch Weinstein take a shower.
0: Yeah. Uh, what you haven't? Oh my God. Joel, I just, please, I, 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 I don't know why I'm calling to you to save this conversation, but seriously,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Kill Bill is uh, Tarantino's kind of uh, mixing of uh, almost like a spaghetti western with anime with samurai movies, with kung Fu movies with uh, you know, old TV shows, which you know, one of the fun little tidbits that people like to play with is that, that in uh, Pulp Fiction, when Uma is talking about how she was in a pilot and she describes all the different characters in the pilot, all those different characters happen to be the same characters in Kill Bill, um, which
1: Fox force five.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Ketchup. Um, <laughs> this, this film, I, I think everybody kind of had the same reaction when they're like, Uma Thurman is going to do what? But, oh my
0: God, this is epic. I remember when you first heard about it, you were like, How big are her thumbs?
2: <laughs> Those are her, that's her big toe. <laughs> or she's wearing, you know, the Bruce Lee yellow uh, jumper from um, Enter the Dragon. Yep. yep. Or was that Game of Death?
0: No, it was Enter
1: the, drag- yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the, the, the Dragon. Game of Death? Enter the Dragon, w- he was wearing no shirt.
2: The very
3: first frame is the Shaw Brothers logo, which is classic, like Kung Fu Saturday morning. Like, awesome, but low-budget, like, 1950s, well, 60s you,
2: kind of stuff. You throw in Shogasugi as uh, Hattori Hanzo, and you've got your 80s ninja movies mm-hmm. right uh, there. Sonichiba? Or no, Sunny Chiba, right, not Shokusugi. sorry. Very similar. <laughs> <laughs> I love Shokusugi. I just wanted to mention him. Um, plus all the blood spray, like, in the, the, the boardroom scene with uh or er any she um i don't know there's just so many things well, to look about
1: cutting off movie. sophie's arm that you know that right quite the fountain
2: <laughs> plus you've got the soundtrack and uh now i don't know that we really can discuss them as two separate films because ultimately it makes one story um
1: but stylistically they they are very different
2: yeah they there's a very different
3: feel in the second one
1: it's a tonal change for sure i mean because it's, it's more cartoonish, almost the first one, especially with the anime, you know. And then suddenly it gets very, uh, very realistic and gritty in the second one, because because you know, a lot of the movie she's not the one that's on top. She's you know, buried for a good portion of the movie, for instance.
3: Yeah, I mean the revenge angle is super strong in volume one, and there's the remorse and regret of Bill is the like driving action in volume two.
1: Yeah. Which is the whole, the whole scene, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole um, scene, when she, when she fight, when she finds out that, you know, her daughter is alive. I mean, Uma kills it in that scene.
2: Sorry. I thought Mike, that was usually where Mike might say something. So I didn't want to step in anybody's toes. Um, was it, I don't uh,
3: know. I thought that was a classic <laughs> Joel disagrees, but doesn't know how to put the words together. <laughs> <Pause>.
2: <laughs> no, I think, I think Tarantino one of the few people that we can all agree on across the board. Um, with almost all of his films, but um, I'm just, I'm just at a loss right now for anything to say about these, this, this one, either first or second volume for some reason.
1: Well, like I said, this is one of the movies that I watched. I watched both of these with my sister this week and they hold up very well. I mean, they still look great. Um, The action is awesome. And, you know, being her first viewing, you know, my sister was very captivated by the whole thing.
2: Hmm. Well, just that scene with uh, the crazy 88s, um, that whole fight scene is just crazy, incredibly good. Um,
3: yeah, with a boss fight with Gogo, yeah, I love it. Again, I mean,
1: very, very few movies can hold, hold hold my sister's attention for two hours, and this one this one did it both times.
2: Right. Um. Well, then you add in the the dialogue, the and the storytelling, some of the um, uh, a little bit of the non linear, and then uh, you know throw in his stable of of regular characters. And it just, it's kind of like he took all of the things that he'd been doing up to this point and made them into one series of films.
1: This, this was basically like his magnum opus, this, this series.
2: It certainly felt like it. And there was talk about, well, they were, they were talking about releasing the whole bloody mess as part one and two together as one film. And, you know, recently this was discussed. And then there, there was rumors that he was going to do a part three, That's still a rumor um, because, you know, he's currently working on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And after that, he says he's only doing one more movie and then he's done. So so he's only doing 10 movies.
0: Yep. That's his career.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much his career projection all along.
0: Yep. Well, you know what? I kind of respect that. I'm going to do 10 movies. I, I would rather have 10 really good movies than. You know,
1: George Lucas. Add, then Quentin Tarantino signing with Netflix to make <laughs> yeah 50 movies in a year.
0: Yeah, I'm going to make a movie every year. It's going to have... uh, uh Sandler? No.
1: <laughs> but sure, yeah, it's going to have Sugar Ray I'll, in it. This this viewing of uh, Kill Bill was the first time I realized that uh, Gordon Liu plays uh, the head of the Crazy 88 and Payway. You didn't catch uh, that? Payway i may a payway. He plays a restaurant. He plays a soccer play. (laughs) He plays a lettuce wrap.
2: (laughs) Well, and something that you kind of touched on there, which I think is is kind of a good point to make, is that uh, along his entire career, he's been offered a lot of other things to do. And he's turned them all down because he wanted to do what he wanted to do the way he wanted to do it. And he's kind of written his own ticket in a lot of ways. And how many directors will be at the height of their career and say, you know what, I'm going to take three or four years off to work on my next movie? You don't do that. If you're at the peak of your powers, you're going to make another film as soon as possible to carry that on and keep your momentum going.
1: Mm-hmm. Because usually Hollywood has a very short memory.
2: Right. But he's you know, he's consistently taking his time with things that he felt like he needed to take his time with. And because of that, the quality has been there, and everything he's done. Even though there may be a, a thread that kind of is similar, there's a certain tone to it that's always going to be kind of the same. They're all very different films, Um, genre-wise, and and uh, yeah. uh, I mean everything about them. You know, they're all individual pieces. But this one especially was, like I said, it's kind of his magnum opus. His kind of um, I'm going to put everything in the kitchen sink into these two movies and make everybody go
1: whoa. And it was so brilliant to use anime to tell Oren's story because there's no way you could have filmed that, you know, any of that with a nine-year-old, eleven-year-old, you know.
0: I am so taking that phrase out of context. <laughs> Come on, Logan. That, that's going to be it. your ringtone now, Pat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i mainly just talking call about... him
3: during. Oh,
1: no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was <laughs> just
3: <laughs> never mind. I was going to say just call, <laughs> just call him during work hours. That'll put that to bed. Mm. <laughs>
2: that she said this one also has some of the most most iconic characters um that lend themselves to you know not intentionally to marketing but i mean you know each character is so like you could make a movie out of each character's story almost in a lot of ways
3: sure from the opening in the church where they focus in on each of the people that wronged her
2: you could even make a, a you know a Pai Mei movie or you could make a a, a tori hanzo film and it would be just as engaging because those characters are very well rounded and very iconic on their own let alone when you put them all together into a big
1: But pot. funny enough, you know, they're more well rounded than any member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad with the exception of the Bride.
2: But that's where those that would be a movie of those five together. Like their story before all of this happened, you know, tell a one of their assassination movies or something, you know.
3: It's also kind of cool that the one that almost takes her out is the one that does not try to fight with his signature style, appreciates how dangerous she is, and just bushwhacks her.
1: Yeah. Because, I mean, if if you think about it, that's, you know, that's what's going to be her Achilles heel is underestimating the weakest member. Because she pretty much, you know, she sees sees his feet. She's like, all right, well, he's just sitting there (laughs) doing nothing. There's no way that he expects me, you know, underestimated the shit out of him, opens the door and... Almost, almost
2: dies. (laughs) (laughs) Next thing you know, she's buried alive.
0: Doing that little punch thing.
1: Yeah, I just love that
3: take on Michael Madsen because I had this image of what his character was going to be in my mind. And it went such a different direction. It was so satisfying that I couldn't see it
0: coming at all. Was it, was it Mr. Blonde that you were expecting?
3: Yeah, I think I was expecting
0: Mr. Blonde only hyper stylized. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I had had in mind for this one too.
1: Instead of just a a, a, a shit kicker, washed up old assassin. <laughs> yeah,
0: I <that> like whole, <laughs> I like the fact Tell that
1: you're about <laughs> as useful as an asshole right here.
0: What, Mike? I was gonna say I like the fact that Tarantino goes back to the stand I don't. I want to say standard, but he goes back to almost his stable of actors for all of his roles. It's like he doesn't have to deal like Michael Madsen. Did, does movies with Tarantino, he gets it, he figures it out, he realizes what Tarantino is looking for. It's and he then in the later movies he comes back and he goes back to Madsen for new things. He doesn't have to redo and have new actors figure out what he's doing in in each of his new movies. I like the fact that when you watch when you watch a Tarantino movie, you're like, oh yeah, Michael Madsen um, is probably going to be it. You know, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel Jackson. Um, I just lost his name. Uh, the guy with the with the funky teeth. Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Steve Buscemi, Buscemi. Yeah. You but know. But then
2: he'll he'll introduce new people like Christoph Waltz in uh, uh, Django Unchained, which then led into Inglourious oh, Bastards. Right. Which that's like the film that shot him into superstardom in America, anyway.
1: Well, yeah. let's move on to Death Proof death we beat beaten kill bill just to death
2: yes death proof
1: we, we have five finger death punched kill bill i think <laughs>
2: nice now here's where we're gonna all differ i think because my single greatest experience in a movie theater was when i went to go see grindhouse opening weekend um april 7 you were, you 2007 and dennis, right? um i think i think it was dennis and amy maybe both um and I was geeked because, again, Rodriguez and Tarantino, Bruce Willis. I mean, you just had this this huge extravaganza plus all the fake trailers and everything. It just was this big. And when I got there, the theater was full and everybody was so into it that it just was one of those things where you could just feed on the energy of everybody else. So I just instantly fell in love with it. And as I was telling Pat earlier, there's two versions of Death Proof. There's the version that was in Grindhouse, which is about an hour and a half. And then there's the the self the standalone release which is almost two hours, and they're two very different films because the pacing is the same, but because they cut out so much of it, it's a lot trimmer and the storytelling is a lot more concise. So I recommend if you're kind of on the fence about it, to watch the grindhouse version, which you can you can get the grindhouse version, uh, the you can buy them together as one film, um, or you can buy them separately.
1: And I'm already two thirds of the way through this. <coughs> I'm just going to finish this
2: one right well you still should finish it either way but I I know a lot of people have issues with it I know Nikki uh, from New Zealand is in the same camp as me this is actually her favorite Tarantino film I wouldn't Uh. put it that high but Hmm. uh, it's it's very there's a divine line
1: so so I was going to this was the only Tarantino movie I hadn't seen and I was watching it today and uh, work called me away unfortunately and I wasn't able to finish it and I'm about two thirds of the way through it And I got to say that um, unless something amazingly miraculous happens in the last third of the movie, this is probably going to be my least favorite Tarantino
3: movie. Well, the thing is, is the best part of the movie is yet to come for you. But this is the bottom of the barrel for me. Um, It commits, for me, a cardinal, nearly unforgivable sin. Uh, I really don't like it when characters are killed seemingly for no reason, especially if the deaths are extremely brutal. Mm. It, I get that the narrative reason is to set up the revenge story in the last act, but it's the cruelty with which the characters are dispatched. And, uh, the fact that they really didn't deserve to go out like that. Um, just, squicks me out, and it makes me really uncomfortable with the whole thing. And honestly, I would straight out hate this movie, instead of have kind of a neutral to negative opinion of it, if it weren't for Zoe
2: Bell. Did you say squick?
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: okay. Squicky. Squi- As in Lenny and Squicky. Oh,
0: uh, kind of yeah, okay.
1: Squishy, I, icky. I, I, like I said, I haven't gotten to the end of the movie yet, but I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm hoping I'm right or not, but I'm kind of assuming that Somehow, by the end of the movie, Zoe Bell is going to be the one who saves the day and, and kills the bad guy. but Not entirely. But I mean... Way to spoil it, Joel. <laughs> I
3: mean, Zoe Bell is a super
2: badass in this, and she, for me, saves...
1: Well, she's a super badass, thing. period. I mean, she is.
2: But here's the thing. You have to put it in context with what they were trying to do as filmmakers. When the two of them got together and said, we want to make a double feature like they used to do back in the old days, they picked their set genres and they wrote films based on that genre. So, you know, if you watch the old seventies exploitation movies, this falls right in line with those types of films where there was gratuitous violence, there was, you know, sex and nudity and, and drug use and whatever. And it was, it was very over the top. And that's exactly what he was going for.
3: Sure. But even those seventies uh, exploitation films, I'm not going to say it never happened, but usually you don't have the explicit cruelty towards a character who hadn't in some way earned their fate
2: in the narrative. I, I would disagree, but okay. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with these films And so I, maybe my perspective is a little different and I can get where people are coming from with their distaste for it. Um, and it's, like I said, it's, I wouldn't put it at the bottom of the barrel, but as I'm looking over his filmography, I don't know that I can put any of them at the bottom.
3: Yeah. That's the thing is I don't hate this film, but something has to be last place.
1: For for me, it wasn't even the the gratuitous violence that bothered Mm -hmm. me. I mean, or the deaths of the characters. I mean, because, I just didn't care for the characters really. I mean, it didn't bother me that they died because I found all of them kind of annoying.
2: Even Stuntman Mike? Uh,
1: he's probably. I mean, him being Kurt Russell, of course. I mean, there's, there's, you know, he's got the buffer zone of being Kurt Russell, so. You know, <laughs> <And> I, mean, <laughs> I I
0: have to agree with Pat on this that there is a big, there is a wide that that buffer is huge.
1: Yeah, I mean, he could he uh, he, he could be doing just about anything, and it's probably going to be pretty awesome. Yeah. But I Kurt mean,
0: Russell peeling potatoes.
1: <laughs> uh, I just felt i mean this is a like like Mike was talking about earlier with the, you know when when the tarantino was turned up to eleven, I just felt like every conversation that these women were having just felt so unnatural and forced and it, and, it, and it just i, I i'm sitting and, and i'm I'm sitting there going, I'm, I'm like I don't know if this is because he doesn't know how to write women or because I'm not a woman that hangs out with other women and I don't know how they talk to each other
0: <laughs> you're not a woman who hangs out with Quentin Tarantino. Oh, uh, now we, we've gotten to the heart of it. <laughs> Your feet are not nearly nice enough.
1: <laughs> but you know, it just—I don't know—it just normally he his his uh you know his dialogue is spot on, obviously, and it had it, it just felt like um if I'm going to use the whole dance analogy for his dialogue, this almost felt like uh like a, a 33 turn you know record turned up to 45. It just didn't feel. Natural or it, and it didn't feel, it felt like people were trying too hard to be cool.
0: Oh, and that's a sweet so- spot for Patrick right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is but one I mean, of the things.
1: As, as someone who is, has drank a lot of alcohol and worked in a lot of bars, I know how people act in bars, and they don't act like like spring break. Every single time you're at a bar, it's not spring break. huh. You can do shots without, you know, I don't know, it just, it, I just, I. It I don't know.
0: No, no. Uh, keep going, old man yo, yells at clouds. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear this. Maybe it would have
3: made more sense for you if they were a bachelorette party because I know for a fact they act like that.
1: Yes. That, and, and that's what I'm saying. It's like you get a group of women together, you know, just because they're going up to a cabin for the weekend doesn't mean that they're going to automatically go into bachelorette party mode. Exactly.
2: Oh. Uh, well. I mean, even,
1: even hot women know how to be subtle sometimes.
2: I've lost count how many times I've seen this film and I, something about it. I really enjoy. So
1: I just don't, I disagree. don't, I don't like any of the dialogue. Yeah. That, that's the main, it just takes me out of the movie every single time they start talking. And and the, the funny thing is, is I was like, okay, maybe it's just the actresses. I don't know. But then when, you know, I've moved on to now uh, uh, Rosario Dawson and um, Mary Elizabeth and uh, the other girl. And I'm like, and Zoe even, and I'm just like, no, they're still kind of stilted and fake feeling, you know, it's just, and I haven't figured out yet why Zoe Bell is playing Zoe Bell, but I'm sure that's going to play into it at some point. But yeah, you, know, but you she need a, to finish it. Yeah, but she, she actually is a, a former, former and current stunt woman. Yeah, yeah. she was Xena. That's what I'm saying. I mean, she, she's, she's a, she's an actual badass. All
3: right. Uh, on to Inglorious Bastards.
1: Yes
2: which uh, Tarantino is known for having very strong opening sequences, memorable ones uh, that, I mean the rest of the movie as well, but that opening sequence uh, with Christoph Waltz at the the house is just nail biting.
1: That's Mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite opening scenes in all of cinema. It's definitely in my top three. So good. The tension is, is amazing. The acting is amazing. I mean, and,
3: There's a really interesting theory when it comes to this film that this is the linchpin of the uh, Tarantino cinematic universe. The reason why everything is so hyper cool and hyper violent is because this is a universe where the main difference between his real world and ours is that Hitler was gunned down in an orgy of violence in a movie theater. And that has like, shaped the way everyone views cinema and the world ever since nice so I, I love that theory that th- the ending the surprising ending of this one is like the reason why his world is different from ours
1: huh I didn't know that
2: you never heard that either
1: but I, I I like it and I do remember at the end of this movie being like holy shit they just killed Hitler <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, like, where do you go from there? I guess that's where you go. His universe, interesting.
0: I saw a, I, I don't know, it was a comic once where they were, it was a uh, Avengers type thing, and there, somebody gets like yelled at for showing Captain America and Glorious Bastards and telling him it's a documentary. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Um, what's that's funny. It's,
2: interesting. Is there's uh, another film called an Italian film called Inglorious Bastards, not spelled the same way, and it's not a remake of that, but. Uh, just a fun little trivia, fun fact for you. But, you know, on top of Christoph Waltz' portrayal of uh, uh, Colonel Landa, you've also got Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain who... <laughs> Lamy.
1: Oh, uh, my kill, God. Kill you some that, Nazis. That fucking scene when they're introducing <laughs> all three of the people, all three of them to Christoph Waltz' Hans Landa. Yeah, so fucking funny.
2: Well, and again, you talk about high, high tension scenes. The one in the bar in the basement is, is also very just loaded. Like you're sitting there going, oh shit, what's going to happen now? Hmm. And you kind of know where it's going, but,
1: it's, but he write he writes tension so well.
2: Yeah. And when all of the very
3: best of them, like the most important parts of the plan are all pretty much killed when it goes to shit. It's like, where does this story even go from here? but he
2: pulls it off. Yeah, I mean,
1: Londa well, L- chokes her out with his hands. That's where it goes. Yeah. That scene, man. Oof.
2: But again, here's here's Tarantino kind of taking after he's d- dumped his load and killed Bill and he's gone, you know, to the the brink of everything that he's built up to to that point and then Death Proof kind of hits the reset and then now he's going into his uh almost not historical Phase, But his, you know, genre, not genre pieces, um, period, period pieces. Thank you. Um, you know, because this is uh, during the war. And then Django Unchained is during uh, well slavery. And then Hateful Eight is, you know, a Western. I mean, he's kind of it, it, I'd never thought of it before. But, yeah, he kind of went up to a certain point, hit the peak, hit the reset. And now he's taken a different path.
3: And who would have thought that after establishing a genre on his own, the first time he decides to duplicate two films in an established genre, it was going to be a western.
1: Mm-hmm. I know, right? Django is a western. Yep. That I wanted Django.
0: Yeah. Wait. What were we gonna say, Mike? Sorry. I was gonna say, Inglorious Bastards was in, probably near the top three of my favorite uh, Tarantino films. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why I enjoyed it so much. Um, but
1: I mean, the introduction of Christoph Waltz to the world is more than enough reason to love this.
0: Yeah, that was ridiculous, but I think the
1: the scene where they're where they're eating the dessert in the restaurant, and you just you're you're sitting there at watching it, going, "Does he know? I mean,
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah." And like you said before, I mean, Tarantino writes tension really well. You know, I mean, so how many times are you in a situation where you're watching a Tarantino movie and you have no idea what the you know what anybody is going to do and what's going to happen next you know you have this idea you know, you have three to four different characters all could possibly do re- logically do something in each situation especially what? in like the um the hateful eight when i just watched it there's so many p- points where you're like this would be completely legit for this character to do whether or not they're going to do it or not let's see
1: well that's one of the things I like about uh, Tarantino's movies is he always allows you as the viewer to know something that the character doesn't know mm-hmm. and like that and the tension that that creates is you know is it, pretty nice because uh, you know knowing you know having information that the character doesn't know as he's getting in the middle of something is is a very powerful you know way to build build tension because you can see it coming
0: right so Django unchanged yeah is so not this the name is- of this movie Unchained. Yes. Yeah, Unchained. Unchained. This is a remake and
3: uh, a Western. Django. I just, I was very surprised by this film. Uh, yes, I expected I, to like it and ended up loving it.
1: Same here. Actually, I went in, you know, thinking, okay, it's a Tarantino movie. I know I'm going to like it, but yeah, I I very much, very much liked it.
0: Mm-hmm. I went into this thinking I was going to like it and then realized I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, just that, again, an, another great sequence when um, uh, Christoph Waltz is introduced with the giant tooth on top of the, you know, as a dentist with on top of his wagon. And there's that whole scene with the, does it blow up? I can't remember now. It's, this is one that I haven't seen. I was meant to watch before the show, but uh, it's it's very funny. Um, there's a lot in it that's very funny. But
1: Well, Dr. Schultz is a, is a great character. Yes, like this scene, when he when he uh walks out and just shoots the sheriff right in the street, and everybody freaks out and he's like, now they'll get the marshal and he just goes back in the street
3: uh weird connection uh Schultz's wife is the grave that uh, the bride is buried in.
1: oh, Paula Schultz, yeah, yep, huh. Wow I didn't never catch that I didn't either. That's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, just one of those weird little connections that he loves to put through his movies.
1: But this was, you know, this was uh, another movie where Jamie Foxx just knocked it out of the park.
2: Oh, a little apprehensive um, because I'm kind of hit and miss with him. Like, sometimes I really like him and sometimes I'm like, really? Did we have to?
1: Yeah, no. Have you seen Ray? Yeah, I
2: didn't care for it.
1: Oh, my God.
2: How about Baby Driver? I've not seen it yet, but it's on my short list. Dude, you have to see Baby Driver. Um, but this one is one of those where I was like, okay, I get it. He was the right man for the job, and it's it, it does kind of blend a modern take on a a non modern story, if that makes sense. Um, it's got a very modern feel to it, but it's essentially it's a it's an old spaghetti western. Um, and can we just say that Don Johnson is fantastic, even if he's only a brief part? <laughs> yeah, Big Daddy. He's just he the- just.
1: You want me to treat him like a white man? No. This <laughs> is the way he immediately
2: no. He he steals he steals the, that scene. What's
1: the name of that Peckerwood in town?
2: Um and then and then Leonardo DiCaprio, which was kind of a surprise, but he he plays that role I mean, I, I wouldn't have put him in there myself, but he again he, he walked away with it. He with this?
1: Just, I, I I used to dislike Leonardo DiCaprio and he's grown on me over the years. And this was the movie that in all honesty, I kind of pretty much fell in love with him.
2: I've never he, had a problem with he him. Goes,
1: he goes balls deep into this character and just yes. steals every scene he's in as much, as much as Samuel L Jackson keeps trying to steal the scenes from him. He just keeps taking them right back.
3: Yes. Well, and it was Sam Jackson that pushed him. Like he was having a lot of trouble with the overt racism in his character and uh, Sam Jackson basically took him aside and he's like you're going to say this because i hear worse than this every day and i'm rich
1: <laughs> and just i mean you you have to appreciate you know the realism of the time i mean it's a period piece about slavery it's going to be it's not going to be pretty i mean yeah i mean that whole you know introduction to the mandingo fighting you know just and the introduction to Calvin Candy is just that sets the tone for just you know what an what an awful awful thing you're about to see <laughs>
2: well, and the payoff is that much more satisfying at the end because of everything that happened before um it's it, it it ties everything up nicely and it's just a very'
1: it, and it, it and it's, and it's good Calvin's own hubris that pretty much does him in because if he needed to just let him walk out the door instead of insisting on that handshake. Because he just had to rub it in his face that, he, you know, he was the winner and you lost. And, you know, it was, it was a fitting end for, for both characters. You know, Schultz pretty much got the last word. <laughs> and Candy, you know, got, got done in, like I said, by his own hubris. Yeah. And then after that, it just goes on a ridiculous shootout rampage. Yeah, but it's still good. It's still it was fun.
0: I really need to see
1: this. (laughs) Say say goodbye. What was, what was his sister's name? Say goodbye to miss Judy.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah. And the
3: uh, incredibly difficult role that Sam Jackson had to play as the, uh, kowtowing and hopping, uh, kind of uncle Tom character that was like in love with his master and completely the opposite of Django. Like I cannot possibly imagine such a difficult character Given the times for an actor to have to try to portray,
1: and just what a—I mean, what a complex character too. Just to be—I mean, in, in that day and age, to be to be able to talk to your master like that, you know, and stand up to him, you know, and
3: like, and the anger he has at Django for screwing up the way things are supposed to be because he had benefited from the injustice.
1: Yeah. Exactly, because he won he he was part of the problem because he wanted to keep the status quo because the status quo was him on top. Right. He, may, you know, he may have been in hell, but at least he was the warden. You know, and and like you know, like Django said earlier in the movie, you know, it's only it's only you know, you're gonna you're gonna have me be a, a, a black slaver. He's like, you know, that's the only thing worse than being what Samuel L. Jackson is. You know.
3: Yeah, an important movie, and uh, I, I'm glad I saw it. Cool.
1: You know that, the the scene where um where Calvin uh has all the blood all over his hand. You guys know that, that was actually that actually did happen. Like
3: yeah, Leonardo he actually
0: broke actually, the glass.
1: Yeah, broke the glass, cut his hand, and stayed in character until they finished filming that scene.
0: Hmm. That's like uh what's his name from Lord of the Rings breaking his toe and not slowing yeah. down either.
1: Yeah. Vigil Mort Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> yes, that guy.
0: Let's move on to the hateful eight. Yep, and right. finally. Hateful Eight, I saw it for the first time today.
2: Um, I saw it for the third time last night I got through about half of it.
1: I saw it for the first time about two months ago.
2: Yeah, I don't think I saw it
3: opening weekend, but damn near. Like, I think I saw it the week after opening weekend in the theater.
0: Nice. Uh, So this is another one of his westerns. Uh, After Django Unchained, he jumped on Hateful Eight. Uh, This is three hours of western mystery mystery goodness
3: <laughs> yeah there's a lot uh, it also kind of feels like an agatha christie piece where everybody with their varying backgrounds is trapped in one
0: room in a storm yeah it's almost um uh with the train yeah. one
1: yeah murder on the orient express
0: yeah or, or actually you know what it's more like uh, 10 little indians oh yeah yeah
2: and it almost feels like in a lot of ways, without the heist aspect of it, it feels a, a little like Reservoir Dogs. Because when I was watching it last night, I'm like, hey, you've got all these people in this room that don't really know each other necessarily, other than by name or meeting for briefly. And they all have something that they seem to be hiding from each other. And yeah, it felt like that to me.
3: I I, I think Mike has hit the nail on the head. There is a lot of Ten Little Indians and Murder on the Orient Express where there are these characters where the association is explicit. And then there's later it's revealed that there are other relationships that have always been there behind the scenes that are only revealed when everything's explained near the end. Yeah. And both of those classic Christie stories are like that. It's like, oh, crap, they all knew each other. And here's how
2: talk about a movie that kind of sucker punches you at the end.
1: I personally think unfairly sucker punches you. I think, like I said earlier, one of the things I like about Tarantino movies is you as the audience are privy to what's going on. And part of that, te- you know, part, that's part of what drives the tension is, you know, something the characters don't know all along. We should have been known that, that, uh, um, uh, what's his face? Uh, was underneath in the basement. Why can't I think of the, character, the actor's name? Oh, um, Channing, Tatum. Channing yeah. Tatum. we should we should have known as the audience that he was under there. I, it felt cheap to me that suddenly there's somebody that has been underneath the basement that we have never known about all along. You know, it just it, it, it felt almost like a like a like a cop out.
0: Well, it it almost calls back to um, Murder by Death. Do you remember at the end of Murder by Death when he's calling them all out? He's yelling at them all for, "Oh no, you're just going to bring in a character that nobody's seen in the third act," you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I I watched it for the first time today, and it was it was, I believe, kind of a kind of a cheap out because you didn't even know that there was a a basement.
1: Right, and I I honestly feel like if we had known as the audience. That, 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 at some point, if we had just known there was something, I think it would have added to the tension so much more.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you can't really do tension retroactively. And you that's guys are
1: awfully th- quiet about this. What, do you, what are your opinions?
0: Well, I, you know, I hadn't really – I'm trying to
3: determine whether I think it would have been an improvement for the film for us to know that or not. Uh, I'm fine with it the way it worked, but I'm not certain I disagree. Maybe it would have been better had we known.
0: I...
1: We don't necessarily have to even know what side he's on, just to know that there is somebody under there yeah. that's going to come into play later. Well, I
0: mean, because it's almost coming. Kind of, you go in expecting something when you've got the, oh, here's the Hateful Eight. Okay, all eight of them are in, are in the cabin. And you're know, like,
1: oh, we're kidding, there's nine.
0: Yeah. It was kind of like pulling the... I don't want to say... Yeah, it is kind of pulling the rug out from underneath you. Cause you're like, Oh, Hey, there was a ninth guy hiding in the, in the basement. And he was her, her brother.
1: Like If you're watching 10 little Indians and suddenly at the end, you're like, wait a minute, there was 11.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess
2: that's fair. I mean, no, I still more about enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I guess I didn't have the reaction. You guys did. I, and I didn't, maybe I didn't think of it in that respect, but I, I love this. And regardless of the ending, I, I, it made sense to me, but again, I'm. No, I, I
0: different. enjoyed it. I mean, up until the very end where they, they did the four, four passengers thing where they explained, you know, it, it was almost kind of insulting. I don't want to say insulting. What's it like?
1: But the narrator, you know, it, it just took it. Suddenly, the sudden narration took me out of the movie.
0: Yeah, that was something kind of weird. I mean, when you're you're in the movie half an hour already for a three-hour movie, and suddenly there's a narrator that you've never heard of before that shows up, that was kind of weird. But I think showing the four-passenger se- segment at the very end of it, it kind of set you up for—I don't know how to put it. It was like, do we? there was a better way to close out how they came in. You know what I mean? I don't know how he would have done it, but it just seemed a little bit too
1: It didn't seem textbook. smooth enough for Tarantino.
0: Right, right. That's the word I'm thinking of. Smooth. It wasn't it wasn't like that super cool, oh, this is how it happened type of thing. It was a little bit more cheesy clue type of, oh, but what if it happened this way? You know, that sort of thing. I mean I still enjoyed it. Honestly, Kurt Russell was in it. I'm good. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't dislike it, but it's definitely not one of my it's it's probably my second least favorite of his movies.
2: Hmm. Come on, you didn't love Tim Roth's
0: Hangman?
1: Tim Tim Roth channeling Christoph Waltz.
0: Oh, <laughs> Tim Roth was doing Tim Roth. Christoph Waltz. Tim Roth was doing Tim Roth doing Christoph Waltz. That's what That's he That's what doing.
1: it felt like, honestly. It felt like, you know, the the role had been written for Waltz and he didn't take it, so Tim Roth came in and decided just to play it as Waltz.
3: The other thing that you guys uh Kind of missed not having seen it uh, in the original run the first couple weeks is this is uh, was there was a print going around which I got to see which was actually 70 millimeter film oh not man digital. yes
0: I did see that in the it actually shows that in the beginning of the uh, in Netflix that's shot in 70 millimeter how tell me how that looked
3: it was awesome like I, I had I didn't think it was going to matter and it's hard to describe why it did. But especially uh, a lot of those really wide shots of the countryside, Hmm. you could tell the difference. And I was very lucky.
1: Have a very spaghetti Western feel to it.
3: Yeah, I was very lucky that I was not in one of the theaters that had problems with the 70 millimeter projection.
0: Uh, Apparently, there was a lot. Yeah, Yeah, there was. Well, there's just, a. I mean, not many theaters that are set up to deal with that kind of film anymore.
3: But yeah, we paid extra for the roadshow. Uh screening nice and i was very
2: happy that we did yeah that's something you're not going to see <laughs> probably ever again honestly
0: all right and now he's working on i'm oh, sorry about that once upon a time in hollywood
2: leonardo dicaprio uh set during uh the same time as uh charles manson although it's not about manson per se hmm it takes hmm. place in 69 i believe
0: So right now they have cast Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, Brad Pitt, and Zoe Bell.
2: In 1969, Los Angeles, a former Western star and his longtime stunt double, struggled to find success in a Hollywood that they don't recognize anymore. That's the plot, according to...
0: I don't know if it's going to be the same thing by the time it goes to to, uh, print. You know, it's... I, I... I think it's I'm thinking this one we may get another maybe not vampires but I think we're getting another um dustal dawn type twist on this one. Well,
3: <laughs> obviously the Manson story is going to be a backdrop and it's not going to be the A story. It's just going to be this is part of the world in a fundamental way but it's not going to directly impact the plot.
1: You cannot tell a Sharon Tate story without including
2: Right right. But it's it's not the focal point which initially when they announced what he was doing, everybody was like, he's making a Charles, he's making a Helter Skelter, you know, but yeah. yeah, no, it's just peripheral to the rest of the story.
3: Right. And that's a well that a lot of people have gone to recently. Uh, there was, uh, there's a television show that I think is entering its third season that is all about uh, that summer.
1: Hmm. Uh,
0: hmm. I think it's a David Duchovny. Red shoe diaries. <laughs>
2: Uh, I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the name. I of can't it. remember the name of it. Aquarius.
3: Thank you. And uh, even uh, Mindhunters on Netflix, like, brushes by that. Hmm. It's not a Manson story, but it's about the FBI in the era immediately following Manson. Like,
0: we're talking like a year after Manson. Wow. We will see. All right. So uh do we do a thumbs up thumbs down on Quentin Tarantino? <laughs> that seems pretty obvious. Yeah, so. Yeah.
2: We, so I mean even do. even with his, his the films that, you know, per se uh, we like the least, they're still better than most of the films that we are out there.
3: Oh
0: yeah. Yeah, I, so. yeah he's a master of his craft. Yeah. yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely enjoy a Tarantino movie once in a while, but as for myself, I really have to I can't it's not one that I can just toss on and it be in the background type of thing. I really have to I have to be in the mood for it.
1: Commit. Yeah. I mean Tarantino himself, he's a little bit of a little bit of a of a dork. <laughs> a little bit uh awkward and a little bit uh Spastic. Spastic, that's a good word for it. Yeah,
0: I mean. Cringy but, but, is what yeah. I would mm.
1: yeah, but but he he knows how to make a A fine, fine movie. That's
0: for sure. So, Joel, what are we doing next week? Jumanji.
3: Ooh. Yeah, we're going to celebrate the uh, Blu-ray release of the new Jumanji, and uh, we're going to take a look at the Robin Williams classic. Uh, If you want to tell us your thoughts on Jumanji or uh, tell us about your favorite uh, Tarantino movie you want to get in the Death Proof debate, Give us your side. Give us a call at 708 Now Rap. That's seven zero eight six six nine nine seven two seven.
0: Right. And uh, our oldest stuff iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podverse FM, com, and all your friendly neighborhood podcast directories.
1: And so, if you disagree with me, you're wrong.
0: Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. So, yeah, so there you go. And uh, come back uh, next week when we're getting our uh, board game video game adventure on.
2: Jumanji, Jumanji, Jumanji. Not anymore. It's all in the toilet.
0: Yeah. After that poop you were talking about.
1: Oh, you got to see it. I'm going to show you.
0: No, like, no, no. Don't post it to the chat. Oh. Nobody wants to see your shit. I don't know where you got the idea that that is the thing we want to see.
1: I'm looking at it right
0: now. It's very impressive. Don't want to start this arms race.
1: <laughs> it looks like a Redwood.